from Flourish DX, this is the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. With workplace mental health becoming a safety prerogative, this is the source of information on psychological injury prevention and health promotion. Hi, and welcome to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. My name is Jason Venshi, and I'm one of the hosts of the show. The aim of the podcast is to rapidly increase the knowledge and application of psychological health and safety in workplaces worldwide. To help with this, we have regular guests from around the world who are leading the way in this important area. But before I introduce our guest and topic for today, allow me to introduce my co-host, Joel Mitchell. How did I, Joel? Um, I'm okay. Um, my son is turning 10 yep. next yep. month, so that's a bit alarming. Yeah, yeah. I think he had, well, he, he was probably seven when we started the show. So Yeah. Yeah. So, time flies. It does. Yeah, double digits. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so we've just been planning his party. Um, he was having some trouble deciding what he wanted to do and was getting a bit worried about it. So um, yeah. fortunately we've landed on something and it should be fine. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Um, so you did a parkour party last time. So um, what is it this time? Uh, video gaming. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So two of his loves. Yeah, and this one um, it's at a place that has lots of um, gaming consoles kind of dating right back to the original um, – Ataris and, oh, and those yeah, yeah. sorts of things through like all of the different iterations of the Nintendos and Playstations and all of that and they've got, yeah, all sort of backlog of old games and things as well. So, yeah, it should be good. Yeah, no, I should love it. Yeah. yeah. So um, I was a bit disappointed that um, you didn't accept my invitation for a training experience that we've got on this Friday at work. Is that is that what we're calling that? Well, sure. What else should we call what it? What it – Listeners, um, we'd love your feedback on this. So I got a um, a meeting request from Jason that said um, sexual harassment VR on the couch, and that was it. That was no, loca- no context. The, the, the location was on the couch. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Location couch. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so sexual harassment VR location on, on, on the, the couch. couch. Yeah. No, no context in the uh, in the email invitation for two hours. Yeah. I don't know how long sexual harassment usually lasts. What can I say? I don't know why I would need to participate in a VR experience when I've had regular experience of sexual harassment. Not since you've been working not, here. Not too. here, no, not here. In in throughout my career, yeah, working as a woman in the resources industries, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I don't need the virtual experience. I've had the real thing. Well, look, I'm curious about what this thing is. I've had. Many people talk about, oh, yeah, we can use VR for sexual harassment training or for vicarious trauma training or, you know, uh, for, oh, what was the other one? Um, uh, psychological safety. Uh, I'm like, really? So I'm. Yeah, yeah I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure how VR is going to help with sexual harassment training. I, yeah. could, I could sort of see the vicarious trauma, maybe. Yeah. Um, but the sexual harassment stuff is so intrinsically linked with like power dynamics and physicality and that kind of thing. I really have, yeah. Hey, I got hit up by LinkedIn with a local technology, by a local technology vendor. I don't think they know what sort of skeptics they're walking into. <laughs> um, yeah. I think it's going to be interesting. But uh, it was, never it trying was, to sell to organisational psychologists, people. It's, um, it's unless, unless you're rock solid. Yeah, and look, it's uh, it was deliberately ambiguous um, calendar invitation for the lols. Yeah, well, there, was certainly, this there was certainly lols. Yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> All right, just some of the shenanigans we get into. But um, yeah, we'll. Uh, I've been invited to sexual harassment on the couch. Yeah, in VR though, it's not real sexual harassment. Just. Well, <laughs> no, what if, it's, what no if it ends up being vicarious sexual harassment, oh, Jason? Hey, look. What if we're that's... giving? What if we're providing? All of our co-workers with the means to actually sexually <laughs> harass each other because we're condoning it because we've set it in the calendar as a training appointment. Yeah, look, I, <laughs> I, um, yeah, maybe they haven't considered the hazard that they're bringing in. Mm. They bring in a control like training. What sort of other potential consequence there might be? So very true. Yeah, we'll find out tomorrow. Um, it was training, and we we'll, didn't take that seriously, did you? It wasn't real. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't actually mean what I said about your private parts. <laughs> it was for the purposes of training. It was virtual. Um, we'll report back, listeners, um, <laughs> on our experience. <laughs> but let's introduce our guest. Yeah, he's been, um, he's, he's been having very a hard patient. time not laughing out loud over there. So <laughs> We'll have to ask him about his experience with uh, VR sexual harassment. Mm. Um, so he has extensive experience in the public sector, including working with the New Zealand Health and Safety Regulator through the Pike River Mind Tragedy, major health and safety ecosystem reforms, and was directly involved in establishing WorkSafe New Zealand. He is now the Chief Executive of the New Zealand Business Leaders Health and Safety Forum. A warm welcome to the podcast, Francois Barton. Afternoon. And, and by the way, um, courageous conversation, Jason, around this uh, <laughs> sexual harassment VR. I was sitting there thinking you're a braver man than I trying to have uh, this thought experiment uh, live with your listeners. Um, so courage, yeah, courage hey, is to be admired, though. Courage is to be admired. We're, we're going in sceptical, um, <laughs> uh, but we will evaluate and report back. So I think Jason has largely done this for the purposes of his own entertainment more than yeah, anything. I, I, yeah. I suspect I, I, I picked that that up and it was more joelle's reaction more than anything. yeah, yeah. And, exactly. um, like i said exactly. she didn't disappoint so that was great but glad to have you on nice yeah no thank you really looking forward to the conversation um so francois as you know we like to ask a couple of uh, easy questions to, mm-hmm. to get into it so what podcast are you listening to I'm I'm a tragic. Uh, I tend to listen not. I don't I don't listen to work podcasts at all. I have I I'm lucky enough to enjoy lots of stimulating conversations as part of my day job. So podcasts for me are like a, a step out. So I, I'm stuck between politics and history are where I tend to go. Um, I'm a huge fan of uh, Rest is Politics, which is Alistair Campbell, uh, which is um, Tony Blair's former spin doctor and a. Uh, 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 Rory Stewart, who's a former Conservative MP, and they have a really interesting take on global politics, particularly UK politics, but global politics. Um, the rest is history, is, is a, a really interesting sort of history podcast from uh, the you know, origins of America to World War Three, two, one, you name it, a really interesting history perspective. Uh, and in the spirit of long form, um, hardcore history, Dan Carlin's hardcore history. He has a six-episode, four-hour-per-episode history of World War One. Wow. And I've listened to it five times. <laughs> uh, so, and, and he just takes full toll of storytelling and just completely and utterly um, just envelops the listener in, 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 in these stories and narratives around these big, big historical themes. So, yeah, I really just enjoy getting um i mean I, I studied history at university so i don't bring any technical capability to my professional job at all other than um you know i think history very rarely um 
repeats, but it often rhymes. And and I think the ability to look back at where we've got things, where things have happened in the past and what can they sort of give us a sense of going forward uh, really fascinates me. So the history political sort of interface I find, you know, hugely relevant. And probably the geeky part in me from a work perspective, I just see our work sits in society. You know, business work is part of businesses sit in, a, in our environment, in our community, which are impacted by our political space, which are, you know, a reflection of history. So, yeah, I, I really love looking at, at history and politics. Mm, I listen to a history podcast as well, but it's not as highbrow as <laughs> the one I listen to is called, no, The Dollop. <laughs> uh, so it's these two um, American comedians who do, um, it, it's mostly American history, so one of them will basically choose a, an event um, mm-hmm. and tell the story to the other one who doesn't know anything about it. Um, but they go on tour, so when they're on tour, they do like local history. So they've toured quite a bit in Australia um, as well, which is quite interesting. Um, and hearing them do like the, I guess, like the thir- first Thanksgiving from America and then mm-hmm. do contrast that with like sort of Australian colonisation or... Um, Ned, Ned Kelly, didn't they do? They, they did, but they've done actually yeah. like sort of the the first fleet to arrive in Australia and kind yeah. of how, how all of that happened. Um, and then it kind of gives you some framing for why Australia and America are so very different. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, just, I, I really like, I think, you know, that's, I think that's the great thing about the, the rise of podcasts is that they provide an opportunity for the, that, yeah, to bring these topics which historically have either been, you know, sort of leather-bound leather, leather bound library shelves into actually, a, a, you know, a common way of engaging on these things that, you know, they're made, made by humans, you know, that, that, that humans will continue to engage with. Um, actually, maybe one that's a little bit like that, which is both fun, is probably the other one I listen to a lot of, is called Origin Story. Uh, and it's two, two British journalists, um, and they, they look at the origins of key words or key concepts. So the, the word neoliberal. So they'll do an hour on what do we mean, what is it, and, the, and their basic view is, and it's probably quite a nice sort of segue into what we're talking about today, is what do we mean by these words? How are they used in common parlance, and what's the implication of that use? And so, you know, neoliberalism, they did, they did one on Ayn Rand, for, uh, Ayn Rand, for instance, so, you know, both concepts and people, and, and yeah, fascinating. So, I mean, I, I just think anything that makes the critical thought come to life, it's got my vote any day of the week. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, can you tell us, please, about your professional career? Whew. Well, sold Christmas trees in London, um, uh, pruned and picked grapes in, in New Zealand and in, and in Europe, uh, taught English in Zurich. So a real grab bag of, of, of work until I was about 30 and then and the real world finally caught up with mm-hmm. me. A more, my more serious, um, probably, you know, professional career saw me work in government, both environment, uh, the Ministry of the Environment around sustainable industry, and then I got involved in the regulator for about nine or ten years in, in the area of health and safety. But the red thread through all of those has been working from government but with business and alongside business around how do we enable businesses in whatever sector they're in to be productively sustainable or productively safe or productively well. Um, so, you know, as we used to say when I was in environment, environmental sustainability, you can't be green if you're in the red. So this is not a question of not being profitable, but it's how do we do that, you know, not just for the next six months, but how do we do that over a longer period of time? And, and, and in an environment space, you're often doing that through sort of industry standards and, and, and 
brand market, market brands and things like that. And I just got tired of the absence of any more formal controls or regulations in some regards. So the opportunity to go into the then Department of Labour in New Zealand, which subsequently got rolled into an independent regulator in WorkSafe following a major mine tragedy we had back in 2010, um, was to sort of get an experiment of what's it like working in a context where you've got sort of regulatory compulsion as part of your toolkit to affect change. Because um, it looked easier in the environmental space. It'd be great if there was a rule around this, I thought. Um, and very, very quickly realised that actually the presence of a regulation or a rule does not have necessarily any impact on whether people will choose to do it or not. Uh, it certainly has an impact on how they view what you're asking them to do. Um, and so, you know, through that experience, the role, I got very, very interested very quickly around the role of um, organisational culture driving performance. Uh, and if you're interested in culture, the only common agreement always, ingredient is always leadership. And when I looked at the role of leadership uh, driving culture and culture driving performance in New Zealand at the time, we just didn't have senior leadership as an agenda item around the health and safety discussion. Well, mental health was not even anywhere near the agenda at that point back in 2009-10. Um, so we, we built we built the forum. We, we sort of thought we engaged with, from the, from the Department of Labor, engaged with a bunch of, of, of business leaders and had the support of um, our chief executive at the time. And we, we created a, a forum of business leaders who wanted to come together uh, to sort of, I guess, really indicate the importance of their leadership work at the top around, you know, the cultures they create within their organisations. And so I helped get that established and then stood back um, uh, back into my WorkSafe role, but then had the opportunity about eight years to step back into the chief executive role of the forum. And that's where I've been since, which kind of brings the best of all of my work experience together. You know, if I think of my language teaching as a joke, but more seriously, language is complex. So how do you distill complexity for people to be able to actually, you know, get to the get to the nub of the issues? Um, environment was how do I work with businesses around good sustainable business practices, and health, safety, and, and mental well-being again are really sort of social sustainability drivers. So I mean, my basic philosophy is I don't think business is a good thing or a bad thing. I think it's a really important thing, and and most business leaders I meet want to do the right thing. It's a question of how do we understand the issues so we can understand our work around those issues. Um, and so translation, um, distilling, uh, and then helping activate has been a really strong read thread through all of those careers from language teaching to environmental sustainability, health and safety, and, and latterly with business leadership around mental health at work. Mm. So, um, yeah, that's an interesting uh, thing. And I... It, I guess in New Zealand you would have a lot of grapes to uh, to pick uh, back in your in your twenties. Yeah, um, nice yep. wine growing region. Some good. I can assure you, I, I, my home. I'm actually talking to you from Marlborough, uh, which mm. is the top of the South Island in New Zealand. For those not produces eighty percent of New Zealand's uh, wine, and and is the Sauvignon capital of the world. I don't like Sauvignon Blanc for what it's worth, and and I can assure you there is no romance in working in a vineyard. You don't do something <laughs> once; it happens twenty five thousand times. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, again, it's um, it's it was a real privilege, I think, growing up in a, in a, in a province like Marlborough, um, in terms of being connected to real work, you know, and understanding um, the breadth of people that do work, and and again, I think being closer to businesses in, in their communities about their intentions, I guess, and 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 I think sometimes, particularly in a government situation, there can often be scepticism around where business is coming from. 
I like to start from a sort of a benefit of the doubt pers- perspective, I guess, around, you know, best intentions, you know, so how do I mm. help people translate their intention? So if, if you're telling me you care, okay, how do we make sense of what that means? What is it, How does that turn up in your leadership of your business so that you're profitable and that care gets gets expressed? And so, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's I mean, it's, it's going to be a big theme, I guess we're going to duck in and out of through today's conversation but it's, it's a, that translation of, of, of a concept to action is is the hard part yeah absolutely and um i guess in your role as chief executive that's something that you're trying to distill right and, and to spread um so what what does your role as chief, chief executive of the business leaders uh, health and safety forum entail well listening a lot engaging and listening a lot so um you know, we've got about 400 chief executive members across uh, the New Zealand um, business landscape from public sector and private sector, local government, profit, not for profit. Um, so, you know, I can't go in there with lots of answers. You know, I need to be really listening and asking lots of questions. And so a huge part of my role is both one on one and in larger groups, really connecting with those chief executives and, and, and what I call their sort of their chief executive constellation that, that brought their engagement up into a board environment from an authorizing perspective. Because, you know, what what fascinates, what interests the boss fascinates the team. Well, the board is the the chief executive's boss in many mm. cases, so that governance angle is really important. But also, chief executives in many regards don't do a lot. They really help activate and direct what others do, and so their 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 executive team and that senior management groups. So I call that sort of that that constellation pieces. I spend a lot of time engaging with those people, understanding what their issues are, understanding where their challenges are, understanding where their ambitions are. Um, and so from a forum perspective, I can't get too technical at all because talking to a transport sector is very different to talking to public public sector, um, is very different to talking to meat processing or, or, or viticulture or winemaking. So how do we go to what I often call the Shakespearean themes around these issues? You know, what are the common things that are always of importance that are, are challenging for everybody? And so I, I spend a lot of time listening. The distillation often doesn't always occur in my head. In fact, it very rarely um, occurs in my head. It occurs with them pulling together other groups of leaders and experts uh, and, and pulling together those that know and have the detail. Uh, and then we do do, uh, we, we develop resources, um, re- reflective resources, so question heavy resources that enable businesses to solve their own problems, I guess, because no one knows their context better than they do. So I'm not going to tell them otherwise. Um, we get to host a lot of discussions, both with the experts and with and with and with New Zealand leaders as well, to share what's good. Uh, and increasingly, we're realising, you know, no matter how you're good you are within your own organisation, you operate in a, in, a, in a national ecosystem. And so, the role of regulators, the role of the whole government system, the government ecosystem, can be helping and hindering doing the right thing. So we're increasingly starting to think about what's a good system advocacy role that we can play because we have quite a unique perspective across a range of sectors at a senior level around the things that are making being safe and healthy and mentally well and productive harder than it needs to be sometimes. And so obviously COVID COVID and the impact around supply chains and migration levels and borders being open and global labour shortages and all the, plus also just everybody being absolutely exhausted. Um, you know, what, what's our sort of story to the system around what we need to enable businesses to be the best they can for themselves and for their people? So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great job. I mean, it's, it, it, I get, I get permission to be really curious and wide ranging. 
And I get to basically, by definition, talk to really, really high-performing, smart people. So, yeah, there's not been a day in the last eight years where I've not felt hugely privileged um, at the opportunity I get. So, yeah, it's great. It's quite a unique role. I mean, the forum, the forum itself is actually, to our best of our knowledge, is globally unique. We're not aware of anywhere else in the world where there is a dedicated chief executive forum in service of healthy, uh, safe, and productive work. So it's um, it's a real privilege. Yeah, well, definitely uh, your work and, and the work of those within the Business Leaders Health and Safety Forum has travelled across the ditch, so we're definitely aware of it in Australia and we've seen some of the great resources <laughs> that have gone out. Yeah, yeah Conquering nice. Australia is uh, no mean feat for a New Zealander uh, <laughs> with the barriers. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, no, it's uh, it's great what you're doing and, uh, yeah, interesting to unpack a bit more about um, the work, particularly around psych health and safety. Mm. Yeah, so uh, leading on from that, can you tell us about some of the work the forum is doing in psychological health and safety? Mm. I mean, I remember I, I, we've been we've been sort of in a dedicated way, really z- zeroing in on this for probably since about 2018. So crikey, what's that? Five years. Um, and like I said, coming out of the regulator, the idea of work-related health issues, so exposures to things like fumes and gases and dusts and stuff like that, you know, the I'd always been acutely aware that we tend to shout safety and whisper um, health. Well, we weren't even murmuring uh, mental health at that time. And, and what I was seeing in 2017, 2018 was just this real myriad of conversations around things that felt, was it wellness? Was it well-being? Was it mental? Oh, the moment the M word came out and mental or psychological came in, everybody freaked out. And, and I was really reluctant given the... Um, absence of traction I was seeing around work-related health issues, asbestos, isocyanates, and these sort of really hard-edged um, work-related health risks. To go and confuse the conversation further with another topic on an already full agenda that wasn't progressing as fast as it was. So I wasn't saying it wasn't important. I was just very mindful of how do we step into this conversation so when I put forward my, my work plan for the year to my board and mental health wasn't on it, they said, where's mental health? And I basically told them what I just said to you, and they said, yeah, we'll get it in there. <laughs> you, need to, <laughs> you need to work. And so it was it was a good example of the board putting good tension on their chief executive. So what we did was we realized very early on, almost like as a function of what we were saying, what I was saying just now was there was just no clarity of what we meant. When people said, and we, and we we tend to use rather than psychological health and safety, the language we tend to use here is more mental health and and, and well being. Um, I could say what it is, and the the diversity or the spectrum of understanding of what people thought I meant, or what they what they thought when I said those words was from, you know, well meaning well meaning executives talking about healthy body, healthy mind, and so going to a whole bunch of things around you know important elements around physical fitness, smoking cessation, healthy eating, um, and again thumbs up, good important work, real connection, no no issue at all. I could talk to another CEO who was grappling with having lost two or three of their staff members in the previous year to suicide, and so suicide prevention was the conversation. But the problem is we were, none of it was explicit. None of it was in the open. And so the conversations we were having around mental well-being is one might think we're talking suicide prevention. Another might think we're talking healthy eating. And then when you start, when you've then got, you're talking to your health and safety or your GM or your HR people bringing their solutions to the table, there was a lot of confusion over, well, why are you giving me a suicide prevention program? I thought we were going to get a cooking expert in. 
Well, why have you got a cooking expert in? I thought we were dealing with suicide prevention. So what became really, really clear for, for us early on was we needed to really provide some support. Step one was, and kind of still remains, do we understand the issues? Because if we don't understand our issues, we can't understand our work. And so that's really where we've we've spent and anchored a huge amount of our effort over the last five years is we've built from that foundation. Let's when we say mental health at work, what do we mean? And from there we can then tackle and and step into well, what and what are the implications for me as a chief executive and what are the implications for us as an organization and what are the implications for our people and our communities. But if we don't clear our terms, if we don't clarify our terms and we're not on the same page, the ability for us to make sense of our work becomes, you know, really, really, really challenging. Yeah, and so that sort of happens in in discussion with the member organisations and then sort of feeds into work products like um, guidance material and that sort of thing? Yeah, well, I think step one for us was was let's let's test that assumption that we're not clear on what the issues were. And and, and like I say, as, as, as useful as my University of Otago history degree is, I, I'm not, I certainly don't have expertise in the area of trying to un- unpick this, this issue. So in New Zealand, we're very fortunate to have in a long-term forum friend, um, Dr. Hilary Bennett, um, who's probably reasonably well-known, not just in New Zealand, but who's um, been working um, her entire career in this wider area, and she's been helping us with a lot of our um, executive leadership work. But this is her real, um, this is her real passion. So we engaged with with Hillary as a as a strategic partner to really help us unpack and unpick what, what do we mean by mental health and mental well being and what was we spent we actually spent quite a lot of time getting clear on that and and and, and anchoring it um, to at that time you know the ISO um, the ISO standard wasn't yet out but anchoring it to WHO anchoring it to British Safety Council anchoring it to good emergent evidence based frameworks and then thinking how do we then distill and explain that in ways that a business leader can understand and the idea of and this this won't be remotely new to anyone on your call on this call but the idea that mental cuz so that the, the, the things we ended up sort of unpicking and being able to sort of say is when we say mental health, let's be honest, most people feel that it is mental ill health, not 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 the presence of health. So step one was saying actually this is a continuum. Actually, just anchoring the fact that and, and we we use the um, unwell to thriving continuum. Um, so when we say mental health, we don't just mean. <clears throat> depression, anxiety, suicide, and, and distress, we mean a continuum. It's a, And this is, I'm not telling you these things to educate you, but this was the conversation we were having. Um, it's a continuum everybody is on. This isn't a frontline issue. This is a person issue. If you're a human, you're on this continuum, so it's universal. Um, you're moving up and down at all the time, so it's dynamic. Um, the things that move you up and down aren't going to be singular. It's going to be home, it's going to be work, it's going to be brain chemistry, it's going to be climatic, it's going to be footy results, it's going to be lots of things. Um, and how you respond to something is going to be different than how I respond to these things. And so a continuum that is dynamic, universal, subjective and holistic is really, really, really important to understand. And so stopping and really making sure that's what we're talking about. And I think... 
And that's not like other risks we tend to deal with in a, in a safety and a health space, because we tend to deal with often things that are more, gravity is not subjective, gravity is objective. Um, a thousand volts of electricity is objectively fatal. Um, actually, the only person that's exposed to the fall is the person that was working at height in the first place, not everyone at work. And if you engineer things well, there's always a level of dynamic risk going on in a workplace, but there are some of these risks, a lot of these risks we can actually engineer out. So this idea, of, and, and actually I'm only going to get vaulted at a work-related um, electricity issue at work, not at home, or not in my marriage, or not at the footy club, or not, 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 not at home with my kids. So these universal, dynamic, holistic, subjective risks are way, way different than we're used to dealing with. So why is your head hurting CEO around this issue? Because this is difficult and it's different. And I think not making that clear and pretending this is a somehow easy or simple is just not doing service to their brains or the issue. So that was a really, really important part of really what we call sense making was let's be clear about what the issues are. And what that then led us to, I think, in a really helpful way was get clear because one of the anxieties that often came with from senior senior leaders I was engaging with was both what am I not responsible for now Francois you know I'm responsible for people's safety I'm responsible for people's health now I'm responsible for their mental health you know and we know from our EAP stats says executive A or B that you know a lot of it is what stuff that happens at home you know and I'm sitting there going yeah and it's because it's subjective and it's holistic but the ability to be able to say Actually, it's not all on you. People's mental health is not all on you, was actually a really powerful thing to be able to say. But it's not a little bit on you. What impact, if they're coming to work otherwise well, is the work you create for them, the environment and the reason they're coming into your place, is that as good as it can be? Hmm. And if you don't have a framework that lets you talk about and that's the holistic piece. Work isn't the only thing, but it is one of the things. So therefore, that's the hook to say, you're going to deal with the consequences regardless, but the bit where you've got control, the bit that is on you, is, is the environment you're creating as good as it can be. And so that then allowed us to go from understanding the issues, allows us to understand the work. And the work is both helping individuals that are um, individuals, but also focusing on the work. And so we've got a bunch of work that then talks. We, we, this was back in 2018. And, and so the work that Hillary did with us is we talk about proactive work before harm occurs. How do we protect people from risks we create? How do we foster those that are already doing well to be stronger? And then reactively in the presence of harm, how do we support, how do we reclaim and restore those that are struggling? And how do we support those that are unwell? And this idea of, and, and so I know that there's, that there's other ways of sort of framing that, but again, if we hug to the evidence, the point is, there's a, there's a spreadsheet, there's a balance of activities we need to be doing. And so all of a sudden, the idea that yoga mats is going to fix your problems, of course it's not going to fix your problems. And anyone that tells you it is, is, is clearly lying to you. Um, but you need to be thinking about a more, if it's a holistic issue, you need to be thinking around a holistic or what we call a balanced, a balanced approach or playing the full field or covering all the bases, you know. And what we tend to find actually is that isn't what happens. We tend to find there's a real attraction to the individual, uh, and either, and a, and a, and a, and a challenge about really looking at the work. Um, so. Yeah, I, but you know, if you don't understand the issues, it's really hard to make sense of the work. And so really that's where I, I think that's 
that's the cornerstone of the work we've been doing for five years. Everything we do comes back to those things. If you care about the mental health of your people, you need to accept what it is and then from there get clear. What's yours? What's the obligation? And the obligation is the work you create and where are the opportunities to help foster and, and, and restore people's well-being. So you've got some choice and some control there. Uh, and, and, and broadly speaking, I wouldn't say it's necessarily transformative for lots of people, but the ability to actually distill it in those terms has allowed a lot of organisations to actually then almost use those four quarters almost as their well-being strategy. You know, what are we doing across those those four domains? Um, so yeah, I mean that that's been a big part of our work, and I can I can talk about some other bits subsequently. But yeah, I mean I just leave it there. Yeah, I think that um, that paradigm shift from mental health is something people bring to work with them, versus mental health is something that can be influenced by work. Um, that's one of the biggest things that we find we need to sort of help our clients with in order to actually get them then thinking strategically about what they can do, what's within their control. Um, because, yeah, there's, I guess, this sort of history that we have of, of really framing mental health as something that exists inside somebody. Um, and so helping people to, yeah, to make that switch in thinking and also to... I guess, move away from, well, how do we know if it's a work issue or a home issue? Mm -hmm. Well, okay, if somebody does, you know, rock climbing and base jumping in their personal time and then they work as a scaffolder for you, you don't decide whether or not you're going to give them full protection based on what they do in their, in their leisure time. Mm -hmm. If they're exposed to a heights hazard while they're at work, you need to protect them from that heights hazard as far as you can. Same for psychosocial hazards. It doesn't matter what's going on in their home life. If you're exposing them to the potential for harm at work, you need to take steps to mm. prevent that as far as you can. Mm. Well, and, and, and I mean, you know, a bit of a sore spot for you. We're good at rugby here. Um, better, <laughs> better, than, better than Australia. <laughs> not not uh, the Joel directly, no. No, I, I don't sports ball at all. No. Uh, but we're also in Western Australia, um, so we're more AFL than rugby over and here I won't anyway. Talk cricket. I won't talk cricket at all because, actually, no, we've, 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 it's, yeah, anyway, I won't get into a sports conversation. Yeah. <laughs> but if we have a lot of rugby. We, we play a lot of rugby in New Zealand. And, you know, I've got – I dislocated my – when I was playing as a younger man, I, I dislocated – the idea of a rugby injury turning up at work on Monday and guess I can't – if I've got a physical job mm. and I've just dislocated my shoulder, there's kind of a sense of, you dumb idiot, but, oh, well, mm. get on with it. So, again, I, 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 I'm, 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 I'm not loath to use the word stigma. I sometimes think we overplay the stigma piece um, as a barrier, but I think it's a more of an understanding piece. I don't. I actually think we're broadly a lot more comfortable talking about those broader mental health and well-being issues in the last five or ten years. Like I think there's been a significant lift in that stigma piece, but I still think there's a level of ignorance and not pejorative ignorance, um, but just a genuine maybe lack of reflection at times. And like to your point, Joel, I think there's there's almost an unintended, almost you know non-pejorative ignorant double standard that. A rugby injury or a mountain climbing accident, there's almost a nobility or a, it's, it's okay. Whereas the idea that it might be something mental is we don't quite, we find that a harder line to accept around home impacting work. And I guess the other yeah, thing is, almost like there's impacted, a, um, always impacted work. Yeah, there's sort of almost an expectation that if it's mental, you can compartmentalize that aspect of it and still, like you can sort of mentally put that to the side. 
and then just carry on at work as usual right. um, where you can't do that with a physical injury. Um, so there's a little bit of getting past that that kind of uh, um, mentality yeah, and, as well. I think so. And, 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 I mean, I want to be really clear. I mean, my sense is I've, what's really been um, – encouraging for me and affirming and really energizing is you know across across the forum membership the vast majority of the business leaders i deal with they 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 know full well the idea that you leave your personal self at the factory gate before you would i mean I, I, there's no that's a, that's that's a very minority view now i think the challenge is but i can see if they've broken their arm mm. you know and to what extent is, you know, and you get into all the old classic issues of, well, you know, what stressful workload for you is actually a good tension for me that keeps me busy. And so, again, that's why understanding that mental well-being, mental health and response to these things as a subjective piece is a truth. It's an uncomfortable and difficult truth, and I wish it was other, but it's not. Um, and so the ability to then, I guess, you know, calibrate your response with, you know, anchor to some good core frameworks and evidence-based frameworks becomes then a really important way of being able to navigate it. And 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 you know, whatever the mechanism, the good the good assessment and evaluation processes let you sort of account for and accommodate for those subjectivities. You know, and so, you know, a recurring thing that people that know me will be sick of me hearing, and whether it's safety or well-being, is that you know, fools with tools are still fools. And what really worries me about the, the, the mental um, health at work or psychological um, health and safety bit is that there's a plethora of tools out there, um, and may, maybe less in the psychological health and safety. What there is is a ton of a ton of apps that you can get that will evidently solve all of your problems, and the fact is they won't. And 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 so how do we ensure we're not? And when I use the word fools, I mean it in a sense of again non-pejorative ignorance. We've got to know what we're after so that we can pick up the right tools in the right way at the right time. And 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 I always think of from a for as a not-for-profit with a broad membership base, how do we grow smart demand? How do we grow smart informed demand? And so, you know, whether it's you know, we've got a number of members that are clients of yours, I've got a number of members that are client personal clients of Hillary's and 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 um umbrella here in, in, in New Zealand and others. So there's a whole bunch of people that work with different, for me, it's a good providers are good providers. <laughs> Let's drive demand for the right suppliers doing the right work in the right way. And and, and, I, and I think that's that that's a really important part of the, the puzzle for me because it's, I think organisations need some help to work through this, but they've got to have a base understanding of what's the work they need to go after. Yeah. Yeah, really, uh, really interesting discussion, and definitely uh, echoes our observations both in New Zealand and and in Australia. the um, The model that you have with um, the Business Leaders Health and Safety Forum um, around mental health that that circle diagram mm -hmm. um, is pretty much bang on with the integrated model. Yeah. Like you say, though, in that reactive space, it's split into two. With you know, what are the accommodations that you're providing versus what is the support that you're providing to uh, to ill workers? So. Um, yeah, we're a fan and definitely the work that we've been doing with the government health and safety lead there in New Zealand. Yep. We've been interacting with a number of CEs uh, in government agencies and you know they are very familiar with it. So that's um, kudos to you and your team for the mm -hmm. work in, in educating mm -hmm. them on that and going, well, this is a holistic approach to mental health in the workplace that goes beyond just, like you say, well-being apps and looking, you know, trying to apply Band-Aids to bullet wounds. 
Like, let's yeah. actually think about what are we doing to protect harm and then what are we doing to accommodate and support workers as well. Yeah. I mean, I, sorry, I mean, so, sorry, Jason, mm. just before you mm. go on, I mm. mean, I, I, no, I think, I think that, um, band-aids for bullet wounds is, it, it, it's quite a nice, I mean, I, I remember it was almost like the light went on for me, um, around and, and and Hillary was the one that helped switch the flick the switch was this idea of mentally healthy workers, mentally healthy workers, mentally healthy individuals and mentally healthy work. And a real and it's just such a powerful yeah, and, and and sometimes I say it and I, I see in people's eyes like saying, Yep. And I'm going to think about that again. <laughs> We're and, and and I think, you know, Joel, when we spoke recently, I, I uh, someone shared with me recently she was an Australian director on a New Zealand board here. Um, and she referred to the fish or the aquarium. And I found that such a, it was such a beautiful distillation, you know, sort of metaphorical distillation of so much of, and it's true for safety, but especially true for mental health at work is we spend a lot of time understandably worried about the sick fish. Mm. Um, and we, and we either look after the sick fish or take them out and nurse them back and then put them back into, often put them back into a, an environment that helped contribute to the harm in the first place. Mm. And actually what the, what the business and what the organization has control of is bugger all of the fish. But the, the pH level, the water temperature, the water cleanliness, the quality of the pump, how often is the pump filter changed? What's the quality of the gravel at the bottom? Is, is there an entertaining little treasure chest with a, a lid that bobbles up mm-hmm. and down? You know, what I can affect the aquarium. And if I can affect the aquarium, I've got a hang of a lot better chance of ensuring the fish that are swimming around are, you know, are in good, good health. And, so that idea of sort of being mindful of, you know, where are in our well-being efforts are we focusing? Are we focusing more on the aquarium or more on the fish? can be off in a way it's a little bit cute, mm. but actually it, it, it allows people quite quickly to go, we're spending a lot of time focusing on the fish. And if I've got 2,000 fish, that's a lot of fish wrangling. But we've got, we've got three or four aquariums across our three branches or three divisions. All of a sudden, actually from an efficiency perspective, we're, we're going somewhere different. So... Yeah, I'm not willing to be glib with that sort of comparison, but I think it's a really, really, um, I think it often helps people sort of go, okay, that makes sense because I'm spending a lot of money on my fish and I'm just not sure it's making a difference. And in this current environment, especially with price of living, uh, inflation, I'm sure you've got inflation issues there. We've just dipped into recession. Once you've spent that dollar, it's gone. Mm. Um, and if you're spending your dollar on things that are, 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 are just subscription only and you're not sure when you can actually change an environment that will sustain growth under your own and sustain value under your own steam, to me that's a much smarter place to be, you know, banking your banking your um, investment and time. Hi listeners, Jason here. We hope you're enjoying this latest podcast episode. Now, if you're like Joelle, Alicia and myself and enjoy learning from the best, then the Flourish DX Academy is for you. The Academy includes free e-learning courses on the ISO 45003 standard for psychological health and safety at work and associated topics such as how to conduct a psychosocial risk assessment and how to create the business case for psych health and safety. All courses feature high-quality videos, downloadable resources, multi-choice questions and a downloadable training certificate on completion. Take your learning to the next level with all Flourish DX Academy courses included within the Flourish DX mobile app. Select podcast episodes from the Psych Health and Safety Podcast and sister podcasts from Canada and the USA are also included. Get started with Flourish DX for free at www.flourishdx.com forward slash get hyphen started. That's www.flourishdx.com forward slash get hyphen started. Now back to this episode. 
Mm. Yeah, I love how you're articulating it. You're definitely um, singing from the same hymn book as what we are. But um, what um, uh, what I noticed actually at that last session that um, that we ran over there, um, that analogy, the the fish or the aquarium. Um, once people get it, it's such a useful way to shorthand the conversation um, because they they we're all sort of using that language saying, well, hang on, are we talking about the fish or are we talking about the aquarium? And everybody understood it and then they were able to move straight into, all right, yeah, no, we need to shift back and talk about the aquarium, not the fish. Um, so yep. it, it is a really – once once people get what that means, it's such a such a great way to shorthand that discussion. And so when you take the – when you look at it from a – you know, if you think – You've got filters and you've got water temperature, but when you can put that into a corporate or an organisational context, where you've got you've got all your HR functions and you've got your operational demands and you've got all of those corporate assurance, me they're all they're all your aquarium levels, mm-hmm. and and that the beauty of being able to frame that you've got there's you've actually got more influence at your discretion when your mindset's in the right space at that point than than not. Because otherwise, it basically just becomes a target for throwing money after good money after mm. bad at, at a whole range of people. That's quite like a sugar rush. Whereas I think, you know, one of the examples I shared, um, I've, I shared at that session, Joel, but I've shared numerously. Tom it was one of our one of our members here had a they had a, um, a they called it a, a kaitiaki network, which is kaitiaki in, in Māori is this idea of stewardship, the idea of sort of steward guardianship. And they got these. They had a kaitiaki network, which is sort of people from within the organisation that were sort of given a little bit, sort of like a, almost a corporate chaplaincy type training. You know, a little bit of sort of mental first aid type stuff, but not there to diagnose and help, but just sort of check in with people. And they were sort of diagonally across the business, and they they found one of their branches that was a, sort of a little little series of smoke signals of some harm, little smoke signals of some people being distressed. They had a quiet, and they just saw a pattern, and so that 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 particular kaitiaki had enough. Awareness to go. There's actually a little bit of a where there's a little, a few more puffs of smoke. Maybe there's something going on. So they had a quiet word, just a quiet informal word to the, one of their HR people, the senior HR people, who had a look. And what had what had transpired was a period of about three or four years previously, they'd gone through um, a, an organ, reorganization for a particular business transition they were going through. Brought in a team of people that had the right capability. They nailed it. They did a good job. And because they were successful, the needs of the team shifted. But the skills of the people there and the role descriptions around them didn't. And so what they were starting to actually see once they scratched the surface after these smoke signals drew their attention to it was there was a real um, dissonance between the jobs being asked and the skill sets of those being asked to do it. And so their role descriptions were just fundamentally not fit for purpose. So they turned role descriptions as one of their sort of, you know, they used it in a safety terms. One of the critical controls they needed to look around the organisation was how many of our role descriptions are woefully out of date? And I'm sure this will be a complete surprise to any Australian business that I'm sure is highly efficient. They had a number that weren't up to date. Mm-hmm. You know, that, and so they had a team that deal with that. That's their day job. You know, that wasn't a step. They didn't need a degree in psychology to mm. go do our role descriptions. And so all of a sudden it didn't become one of these sort of touching TNT with, you know, do I cut the red cord or the blue cord to stop the bomb exploding? Oh, you know, mental health. Oh, you know, I'm not, oh, I'm not a psychologist, Francois. No, you're an HR expert. You know, and guess what? People's skill set and what you ask of them is either going to help them or hinder their, their well-being. And guess what? And so I think what I loved about that was they are constantly, organisations are constantly changing things like 
role descriptions, reporting lines. It's You just give these smart people a little bit of a mindset shift around, and are you also reconsidering connection? Are you also considering relationships? Are you also considering people's well-being in that space? Still do the same work, just ask a few different questions, and you can shift the mindset by an inch, and you can all of a sudden see for miles. And I, and I think that's the, the power of the power of that mindset shift. I think is is, is often underestimated. And I think, and you know, we, we might get onto it later. And I'm, I think it's worth repeating. I think the challenge is, is if you've got a not a lot of knowledge, is that you end up telling everybody everything you know. So how do you how do you get them to realise in the first place? There's actually a small shift that makes them very hungry for more rather than start with more. And I think for what I come across as a non-expert working with a lot of experts in this area is the passion in here is huge. And I proudly say to a whole lot of people, I'm not passionate about health and safety and I'm not passionate about mental health because passion tends to mean singular tunnel vision. It tends to mm. mean lack of judgment. It tends to mean I lose proportion. I lose perspective. And actually, I think this is one of these issues where we don't need passion. We need genuine, deliberate, purposeful focus. And and step one, I think, is let's be really clear what we're talking about because then that can unlock where we can then flow with demand, the useful type of expert and, and, and specific advice we need. And so I'm talking to chief executives. I'm not talking to communities of psychologists. And, and so that's the, I think there's a, there is a, there's a trick in there that I'm not saying we've cracked, but I certainly feel it's an area where I often see there's a translation, you know, someone speaking German and someone speaking French and, and, and maybe I'm the Belgian or the Swissy in the middle trying to be able to just help actually look, we're actually talking about the same thing here. How do we just get our, our mindsets better aligned? Yeah. Now, all, all beautiful, uh, Francois, and uh, definitely things that we like to discuss. Um, uh, there's a couple of things I just want to bring up, but before I do that, there are some very passionate people here, right, in the workplace mental health space. Um, and some of them um, are bringing a hammer uh, into the work environment. And so every problem they see is a nail. Yeah. Um, and so you have people from, say, um, I'm not going to, I'm just going to generalize here, okay, but say from a lived experience background or from a positive psychology background or a psychological safety background. And, you know, they'll come in looking at every problem and go, how can we solve it with the tools that we've got? Yep. Um, and they'll be very passionate and they'll sometimes be able to influence leaders who don't know better to go, oh, that, you know, this person's passionate. They know what they're talking about. Let's, let's do this. Uh, and I've had to block some of those people <laughs> LinkedIn, uh, because they get very tunnel vision again. No, no, we can't. No, the most important thing we need to do is to provide care to employees. I'm like, morally, yeah, I agree. It's like, let's provide and support uh, those people who are ill. And, and, but like, that's not the only thing we do. We yeah. take that integrated model, like the, your um, mental health model so beautifully depicts. It's like, what are we doing to promote, protect, um, support and reclaim? You know, it's not just one or the other. And then even under those four pillars, there's kind of like different um, systems or interventions that we can incorporate to address mm. those those goals. Um, I love the the fish in the aquarium or the fish in the pond an analogy. Um, Pete Peter Kelly loves the fish in the pond analogy. Um, the the flat uh, the flower and the soil. Like which one do mm. you treat um, mm. to make it bloom? Um, that's another good one. Talking about the individual versus the environment. But one way I also like to talk about the psych health and safety approach is um, versus the individual approach this is, is if you think about something like employee assistance programs, which are there largely to support 
workers with with ill health. They are trying to be promoted more as something that employees can use more proactively, mm-hmm. but largely used in more of a reactive sense by employees. Um, if we think about that, where maybe the, the people who use those services get maybe let's say a twenty percent uplift. Uh, in their well-being by attending three to six sessions with a qualified psychologist to take them through something evidence-based like cognitive behavioural therapy. That's great. But we know that the industry average for utilisation of EAPs is under 5%, which means that 95% of your population aren't going to get a 20% uplift in their mental health. And if you were to distill that across a population of thousands or tens of thousands of sub some government agencies are, you're actually not even seeing a blip in terms of any mental health improvement across the population. Whereas if you're improving the work environment and people, or the aquarium, right, and and people getting the benefit just by being in that environment, well, that's truly primary prevention because 100% of workers can benefit from that. And they don't have to change any of the behaviours or volunteer to use the service. They're getting the benefit just because they've got better designed work. Yeah. Um, and that even if it's only having a 5% improvement, you're getting 5% across the population, which from mm-hmm. a population health perspective is, is actually much more beneficial. And, and we're not saying, you know, you have to change your resource and go, oh, we're going to drop employee assistance. No, it's that and. But mm-hmm. think about where you're going to get biggest bang for buck. And it's typically when you're influencing the environment. And that's something we've learned from health and safety. What are the systemic or engineering type interventions that we can bring in? Versus no, relying on individual I think behaviors. it's a really, I think it's a really nice point, Jason. And I think if, if you think about what what assets and capabilities do organisations have, regardless of whether this conversation is going or not, they will have a bunch of you know, in organisations of any scale, will have a range of functions in the the people, culture, and, and HR space, and they will have a range of skills and capabilities in the health, um, and, and occupational health and, and, and safety space. And, you know, it's a conversation I know you'll, you'll, you'll both be acutely aware of. And one we see play out is, well, who's, who's taking the lead? Is it, is it, is this an HR issue or is this a health and safety issue? And, and again, what I often think about from a chief executive perspective is you're lucky. You've got both, you know, both of those capabilities are there. And, and again, maybe slightly oversimplified, but I think often the HR space takes us to the individual and the safety place takes us to a risk and system approach. Um, and actually, if we can understand and, 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 and take a slightly more connected view, which is, again, where the role of the chief executive from a demand perspective can see, actually, what I want to see, team, is some integrated combined, combined. I'm going to use a terrible military analogy, combined arms. I don't want just one, one lot of tri- – I want how do I get air cover? How do I get artillery? How do I get it all working together so we get that impact? Um, you know, I think that's why the leadership piece is so important here. Because otherwise you end up in, I mean, you know, it's true, but you get, the moment you get more than two people, you've got politics, right? And so in every organization, there's going to be, there's going to be issues around, you know, who's got the, who's got the secure, who's securing the resources, who's got, now I think, you know, we've got to overcome that. Integration of responses needs to be the, needs to be the goal here. And so, yeah, I think, I think, I think again, it just underlines, this is the there is really important work, especially if you can frame it around the aquarium or the environment or the um, the pond. You know that that the, one of the CEO's greatest complexities is breadth. That all the issues roll to their table one way or the other, um, and and equally flow down in a constructive way. So the idea of the work environment is they've got more of the levers that can impact the environment within their wheelhouse than any other function in the room. So the role of the SLT, the exec table, the board and the, and the CEO, 
they don't have to pull all the levers, but they have to acknowledge all the levers are pullable. <laughs> they all can have can have an influence. So, hey, lever owners, my expectation is that we're being as smart and as integrated as we can. Now, I want to be really clear that I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. That's a challenge for a lot of organisations, and I'm not sitting here thinking all of the forum members are completely nailing that. But I'm certain. I mean, we did, we did some. Um, at the start of this year, I, I, we do these things called CEO connection calls, which are just small, small group, three, four, five CEO, one hour Zoom calls, um, where I just connect and help facilitate, you know, what do you, you know, whatever the topic is. And this year, at the start of the year, we sort of talked about navigating the storm clouds. You know, how are you as CEO seeing 2023 unfold? Um, and it was sobering, you know, in the current environment. Uh, and then what do you do? And, and then if these, and so, Actually, general social fatigue and divergence was one of those issues, was one of the issues that people are seeing crankier. Um, I don't know if that translates across the, you know, it's, mm. people were short of fuses. Um, we've seen a rise in violence, both. We actually had a terrible, actually, today's, um, what, the 20th of July, We there was a shooting in downtown Auckland where three people were killed today. Um, that's an extreme example, but talking across some of the forum members, people getting parking attendants getting pissed on by clients, people being king hit from behind, screwdrivers through eyes, or postal workers, you know, for no, not for theft, just for anger. Um, also just broader fatigue, fatigue issues around labor shortages and other things. Um, so we didn't just stop there. I said, well, how are you going to navigate these things? And, and so one of them, one of them was around making sure we're really nailing down our critical risk, critical safety risk control. So that was a really important thing. But keeping our fingers on the pulse of where our people's well-being and mental health is was one of the others. And one of our CEOs said in that call, her biggest realization in the last two years through the work, you know, that she's been involved in with us was recognizing that the changing the work is an option. And it, and it was as simple as that. Now she's so smart and their organization is really capable. Just Knowing that was enough for her to then get a whole lot of other things. So they've leaned into the whole flexible hybrid workspace. They've got lab staff and they've got field staff and meat works and they've got other staff out on farms. So really, you know, a couple of thousand, three thousand people. Now, flexibility is exclusively a question of home or office. Well, that's a really binary conversation. Whereas she completely embraced it. What does flexibility for all mean? How do we can start mm. to define flexibility? Now, and what that did is it addressed employment and recruitment and retention issues, staff equity and fairness. It started to actually increase and, and allow them to be more flexible from a market response perspective. But it was actually acknowledging that the work is a genuine mode of change rather than it is what it is and how do we plug something in or roll something out. Um, it was such a concrete expression, such a concrete demonstration for me of of a small mindset shift in the right person can have a really material impact on what's demand, what becomes then, you know, how do we, how do we meet that our CEO's demand in that way usefully? So, and that's not an HR thing or a safety thing. It's an organizational thing. And I think if you look at HR and safety as some two really core capability units within organizations, I, I'd, I'd want both to be playing their part, you know, not, not one or the other. I mean, how do you yeah. see, is that, is that something you see? How, how does that debate, is that a debate you're seeing across the? Uh, I'd be particularly interested. Is that something you're seeing in the Australian in your Australian clients? That that who owns this from a functional perspective? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's a bit of a stoush between health and safety and HR. HR, 
they uh, tend to like to hold on to the portfolio of, of workplace mental health. Health and safety are, we're seeing, maybe reluctant <laughs> in picking up the mantle, uh, even though this is now falling under workplace health and safety legislation mm-hmm. here in Australia with the regulatory reform that we've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's... And then there's some health and safety people who really want to play in this game because they believe in that systems level approach, right, and, and seeing how from a physical health and safety perspective it can have such a bigger impact across the population than just individual level interventions mm-hmm. and then, you know, sometimes being waylaid by, by HR. Uh, it's probably rarer than common at the moment at least that they're playing nicely together. Yeah, so I've certainly uh, spoken to some companies who are sort of actively transitioning ownership of this scope of work from uh, the people function through to the the safety function. Um, So they are being quite deliberate in how they're doing that. Um, I think the other thing also is to distinguish between ownership of the risk management cycle, if you like, and then ownership of controls um, and recognising that really a lot of your psych health and safety controls are actually going to sit within the HR function Mm -hmm. so while health and safety might have ownership of the processes and the procedures around identifying hazards Mm -hmm. assessing risks and exploring you know what are the sort of the the contributing or um, driving forces behind those um, a lot of that the the solutions are actually going to go back to the systems of work that belong to HR Um, so there's there's that sort of distinguishing of who actually owns what piece of this Venn diagram and where do we overlap and how do we make sure that the sections of the Venn diagram are overlapping well? Um, I think that's, really, that's sort of where yeah, we need to land. That's a really lovely articulation, I think, Joel. And I think, and, and again, I think what it, what it affirms for me is if if you don't have cascading from the board to the chief executive or from the chief executive to the board down, if you don't have an understanding that actually you want to what you want to get high performance. You know, you want to be across this efficiently and effectively, and you want us to unlock the good stuff that comes from this. Actually, you want to be really sniffing out. Are, are my teams playing well together? Because my expectation is we're in we're in sync and we're in line. And I and I just think I, I think very often, and I, you know, I've got real real empathy for the the size of the agendas around a lot of our chief executives' tables at the moment. How do we make it as easy as possible for them to understand why that integration is important? What are the questions they can be asking of their teams and how, what are some core cool frameworks or, or, or some structures to enable them to do that? And that's more around the why, I think, the why and some, and some critical maybe what's to then let the team get on with the how. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, 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 that and, and so I mean, I don't know what you're seeing from a, a, a governance perspective, but again, well, I note that the instituted directors have been really good close friends of, of, of the business leaders forum here on, on, keen to hear and understand but I'm still seeing it still feels like really governance communities getting their head around what are we responsible for that that still feels like maybe they're a couple of three years behind even where the chief executives are is that similar with what you're seeing in Australia I yeah I think so it's very much starting with um how how do we do this risk assessment piece seems to be the starting point um and then it's oh okay we need a competence uplift as well to go yeah. along with that um, and then, oh, and we need systems of work to sustain it over time and then, oh, okay, and we need some governance to make sure that the systems of work are actually doing what they're supposed to be doing. So, yeah. it, and maybe that's sort of being driven by the regulation in Australia yeah. and that's kind of why people are starting with we need to do a risk assessment because that's what 
that the regulations are basically telling them they need to do is identify your hazards and, and implement controls and monitor controls. So that that's kind of where they're starting. And then once they get started with that, they recognise that there are lots of other pieces to this puzzle that they, they also need to think about. So that generally tends to be the pattern that we're seeing. Um, there are other organisations who I guess have been thinking about this and have been sort of developing strategy over probably the past five years and so they're more mature in their thinking. Um, they've been doing a lot more of that front-end work more related to um, governance structures and, and long-term strategy um, so for those organisations, it's a it's a different picture. Uh, but for I would I would say for most organisations, they're just going, oh no, we have to react to the regs and then think about what else they need to do. Yeah, Mor- morally, I'd say the the majority of um, executives and boards that we interact with, they all want the, the outcome right. They want healthy, um, mentally well employees, but they haven't realised necessarily that link like we're talking about between the aquarium and and mental health and they're thinking you know let's take a you know beyond blue or like one of these um charities that focus on mental ill health we keep hearing like we need to make people aware of this and how to get assistance not recognizing hey actually if we just improve the way we work around here then that's actually going to drive a much bigger impact on on people's mental health overall mm-hmm. but um francois um you know, we are talking about something that's fairly mature, right? And organisations are still grappling, still trying to get their their heads around um, this as well. Um, like Joelle was mentioning, it's getting thrust upon organisations and people are having to make quicker decisions because of regulation reform here in Australia, but not so in the rest of the world. So I guess for those that aren't grappling with this yet, you know, uh, who aren't at that level of maturity yet, what are the implications? Well, I often say to people, yeah. Um, one of the things I often see people reluctant to step into the space out of a level of maybe a concern around their own maturity is, you know, well, you know, what if it's like opening Pandora's box? There's a level of anxiety of opening Pandora's box or worrying that there's rattlesnakes under the stones. Well, the rattlesnakes are there regardless. Whether you look, I mean, Donald Trump famously said during halfway through the first sort of first blanche of, of, of COVID, he stopped testing and then said test, and so the positive rates were very low because they weren't <laughs> testing. Yeah. Guess what? People were still getting COVID just because you weren't capturing it. So I think the dilemma for those, the implication to those that are, are, are sort of maybe reluctant to grapple with this is you're going to be dealing with all of the consequences of not managing it. You're going to be having people walk out the door and you won't know why. Or the things that they're walking out the door at a point where skills retention and recruitment is really, really important. You're getting these, you're getting these people walking out, and you're you're ignorant of what you could be doing around that. So I would say you're going to be dealing with the consequences regardless. You're going yeah, to be having that, that's 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 important. Just to cut you off, there. Sorry, Francois. No, that, um, you know, it's something that I posted about recently about this risk blind spot. You know, what is your appetite for this risk blind spot? Um, the mm-hmm. less you ask, the less you inquire. The, the bigger the blind spot. But like you say, they're still going to be experiencing the same outcomes that we'd expect for uh, mentally unhealthy work. So. Yeah, and, and, and I think also um, I, I, one way or the other, maybe it's inverse or, or, or from a recruitment perspective, I, I can imagine, do you want to be the place of work that's – I've been speaking to a bunch of organisations and, and, and maybe it's manifesting around some of the maybe the more fashionable elements, but – but questions like work-life balance and flex workplaces, they're just table stakes now, mm. right? 
they're just table stakes. I mean, they're almost not even asked for because the working assumption is if you don't, if you're not even in a space to bat for that, I mean, come on. And so, you know, the, 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 the expect, the workplace, the worker expectations are, are shifting up. And so if you're not wanting to step into that space, you're going to find yourself, I think, increased. Now, where the future of work sits and how that, I'm agnostic on what that could look like. All I know is it's going to be different than what it was. I've got a, a beautiful 16, almost 17 year old daughter. I can tell you, she just got a, an excellence grade on a, on a year 12 paper on addiction. That's what they're studying at year 12. Um, so tomorrow's workers are, are sitting in a different space. So not stepping into the space, the implication is whether or not you like the fact that that's where it's going. Don't. I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm just saying it's a thing. Mm. So you can either move with that thing and respond to that thing, and that doesn't mean following a fashion and, and psych safety is the new black or whatever. But there is change afoot. Now you either want to be you want to be thinking how do we understand what that looks like? Um, people will leave and you won't know why. And I think there's equally an element that uh, certainly in New Zealand and I think to an extent in Australia there has been sort of a stalling of our safety performance improvements as well. And and sometimes I think the and some people are quite reluctant around. Look, as someone actually said to me just recently, Francois, everyone has mental health. I get that, but you only have have mental health if you're alive. So I'm going to focus first on making sure people stay alive. Interestingly, this workplace has never had a fatality. So it's a little bit, it's kind of like, yeah, I don't think that's your acute need. But there's kind of almost this artificial trade-off between safety first, then mental health. Mm. And it's kind of your end thing. So I think mm. one of the p- potential implications is, yes, truck hit person, person killed. So that was a safety incident because it was acute blunt force trauma that killed this person. And it was clearly something around that occurred in the cab of that truck or in the workplace space that resulted in the death. But is it possible, just possible, there might have been some other stuff going on in the cab of that truck and the head of the person in the cab of that truck or the head of the person walking across that gangway or wherever that contributed to that factor. So again, health on safety and safety on health hugely important dynamic and so again one of the thing, one of the implications of not stepping into the space is actually you might be kneecapping your own safety performance improvements and a whole range of other performances that are just going to, so i think the challenge is how do we make them bite sizable how do we mm. make them not just feel like more 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 but bring some alignment to it but i mean i think one way or the other and COVID has been like this i don't i i COVID has fundamentally changed some things, but my broader hypothesis is that what it's done is it's just accelerated existing cracks. It's accelerated and and, and made and amplified changes that were already present. And so I think, particularly around flex and hybrid work, again, the jury's out on how that's going to land, but the idea that everyone's always going to be at the office all of the time is patently not true. Are there benefits of getting people there? Yeah. Well, be clear on what they are. Make it a good place to be. Extract all the value of being with colleagues that you can. Do it purposefully. Don't just do it with beanbags and spiral slides and, you know, drink machines in the corner. Um, so, you know, the world is changing. And I think the, and I think sometimes I think for us as, us as sort of tragics working in the space a lot of time, I think language counts. And I think, you know, psychological health and safety, I mean, they're three really problematic words, right? Psychological, health and safety. (laughs) How do we we mainstream this and how do we find other ways? And that's why I think colourful metaphors and powerful narrative and, and 
And I think the ability to start small become really important tactics and practices because otherwise what this becomes is just another complex nuggety issue on an already massively full. Where does inclusion and diversity? Well, guess what? That's part of the same thing. It's not a separate thing. It's the same. ESG. This is your social sustainability commitment. You know, so how do we, how do we align these things so they're not additives? They're, they're integrated value adds, you know, and I think that sometimes it's actually just going to be hard work. But I think there's a lot we can do around articulating and, and, and making it easier for those people that are reluctant to say, and actually, look, in the words of Todd Conklin, who's a, a famous New Ze- uh, famous uh, American thought leader in the safety space, Todd often says, is the lemon worth the squeeze? And I think around mentally healthy work and, and mental health at work, the lemon is definitely worth the squeeze. So that uh, leads nicely into my next question, um, I guess, recognising that um, executives and, and business leaders are very time poor a lot of the time and have so much in their remit that sort of needs to take up space in their brain. Mm-hmm. What approaches are currently working um, in helping to educate them about mentally healthy work? Um, I think, I mean, it's probably a bit of a distillation of what we're saying. I mean, don't assume they know what you mean. I call it the Charlie Brown, I call it my Charlie Brown engagement, you know, that shows my age. I'm not 10 this week, um, Joel. I'm 50 next week. Um, and Happy birthday. Thank you. Um, and I always remember as a kid, we kid, the thought, the straight line coming out of the mouth is words and the bubble is a thought. And I'm always interested. I say mentally healthy work or mental health. So you're coming along to talk about mental health. What are you, what's in your thought bubble right now with your neighbor? What are you thinking? And when you get that on the table, then you know what you're dealing with because everyone's going to be right, but everyone is right. Not that person, that person. You're, so if we're not clear in agreement that everything we've talked about here is on the agenda and then we can go to the continuum and then we can go to the, the natures of that continuum, that's a really important step. How do we let – and it, it does two things. One, it gets us clear on concepts and language so we can be on the same page about understanding the issue. And I'm just going to be like a stuck record. I think that's the most critical first step. Think about how you can get your busy people clear on what's the issue we're asking you to focus your mind on. The other one is by them being able to put their thoughts in there. Hillary Bennett often talks about what's the rock in your shoe around these issues. What it also lets them do is you're not trying to, you're not an evangelical missionary. I'm not trying to convince you to the church of psychological health and safety. What's your con- what are your concerns? What's your rock in the shoe? Well, I'm worried I'm responsible for everything. I'm my rock in my shoe. Where does individual responsibility sit in, in this conversation? Why is it all me? And you go, actually, guess what? There is some individual responsibility and there's some work. There's mutual responsibility here. So what you can do is the worst thing you can do with, I think, busy people is tell them that they have to do it your way. How do you elicit for them? Where is their mind currently and what's their bugbear? And then guess what? The evidence we know we have access to is actually there's a way through here, but orient to where they're at, not to what page in the Bible you're at around how you want to bring them to the shining path. And I think I just see again and again and again, that's the mistake people have engaging their senior teams. They either start with a product or they start with their view of the truth. Start with where your people are at and let them use their words and trust yourself to then be able to make sense of the issue from their perspective. And 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 that's 
Because then people feel like you're actually engaging them on making sense of their world, not ramming something down their already full throat on a whole lot of other issues. So I would say start with where people are at, really get clear on the issues and don't assume everyone's on the same page. Um, and, 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 and have stories and examples that can link it back to problems beyond just mental health and well-being. And, and I know linking it to productivity can sound a little bit glib, but the more you can connect it to those things that actually have other value, link it to ESG commitments. Tell a story around that. Find a story about that. Make a story up about that. Um, productivity, efficiency, judgment, safety connections. This is a rising tide issue that if you get right, lifts multiple boats. Um, and so I think, again, the ability to link both the risk and the benefit is a really important element as well. And, and the last thing I think around how to bring people on is by doing that, what you're doing is you're, st you're thinking big. And whether it's our sense-making framework or the, 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 the three, the three component um, framework you were talking about before, Jason, think big and then go, where do we start that's small? <laughs> And, and and view it as a longer term commitment, but say we're not we're not going the full hog. We're starting here, and what we but this is the big picture. And actually, if we're not aware of the big picture, we're wasting your time. But we want to move towards that. So thinking big, but starting small, understand the issues, and starting with where people are at would be the three things that for me, I, I see time and time again, passionate people with good intention steamrolling over. And, and what, what you've got is a busy person going, are you selling to me? Are you selling? A, are you asking me to sign off on the thing before I've even agreed the problem? Um, and, and then what happens is the conversation's just in reverse from then on. Or worst case scenario, they don't really care and they want you to go away and they spend the $80,000 on an app that 2% of the workforce use that were already fine or the, the working well get the free fruit on a Thursday and don't have to do anything else and the dollar spent. And next year, when you find something actually meaningful, the money's gone. They spent that 80 mm. grand, didn't have a benefit. Actually, the whole thing gets tarred with that brush that this is all a bit of a bit of a fluff. And, and, and you lose the permission to do it again. So that idea of big, start small, start with where people are at and link it to other benefits, I think that they would be the, the tips I've seen. Well, I've had experience with myself and have seen others, you know, do well. I mean, do they chime yeah. with you guys? Do they sort Definitely. of uh, very sage advice? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that, uh, that very much resonates with with what we find yeah. works as well. We need to understand, um, you know, from our perspective, it's the client. We need to understand where they're at um, and help them to develop um, an approach that's going to work for their business, for their culture, for their people, yeah. for the issues that are th their pain points right now. Yeah. Um, Interestingly, um, I worked at an organisation that did have the free fruit bowls and they were actually a cause of um, a lot of uh, office drama. Another hazard, right? I wanted that last <laughs> banana. Who took that? Um, so, yeah, actually created conflict. Um, but it, it's interesting, right, because like you say, you need to understand the problem first before you bring a solution to the table. And that's one of the brightest points that regulation is driving in Australia because you have to do a risk assessment. Right, you have to identify your hazards. So yeah. you actually you need to understand what the problem is, and then your controls should actually address the hazard. Yeah. Um, you know, Joel and I both come from an organ organizational psychology background, and yeah. diagnosis is you know step one, pretty much. <laughs> like understand yeah. the problem. Um, and companies have largely gone. Oh, I don't want to invest time or money into diagnosing the problem. 
I kind of have a sense or this this thing that I'm looking at is really well you know, uh, marketed and the person behind it's really passionate, I'm just going to spend money on that. But then the money is often wasted because I haven't done the diagnosis and understood the solution properly. So, um, yeah, it is, it is quite nice that the regulations are saying, actually, you, got, you, you do actually have to do a diagnosis now um, yeah. and spend yeah. the time and money thinking about that. And then your controls should really address the root problems. Well, and I, and I think, you know, again, if I just – I'm conscious that COVID is a little bit triggering for some people, so I'm mindful of, of bringing it on the table. But equally, the historian in me – I'm not an historian. The history fan in me says, actually, that was a, that was a globally unique experience. That was like, that was the first time in over a hundred years, and certainly the first time in the living history of everyone on the earth at the moment of a global single point focus of a of a shared challenge. And you know, if everyone talks about we can't wait to get back to normal, I, I'm not quite sure. I didn't read the memo of anyone saying in 2019, "We've done it. We're here. We've reached mm-hmm. the pinnacle." We just need to make sure we stay here. So the idea of getting back to 2019, I don't think the world was that great then either. But secondly, in 2019, well, the idea of changing the work, not the person, too hard, right? Well, guess what? I can work from home. I can mobilise my entire 2,000-person workforce to work at home with laptops in a week if I have to and do it. You know, I'm thinking of my friends and family in Auckland and and friends in Melbourne that had protracted long periods at home. Guess what? We, they managed to make work happen. So I don't want to get into issues of, of, of vaccine mandates and, and state control and all of that freedom stuff. But we've proven when we need to, actually, we can change and move mountains. And so the, the invitation, I think, is, is how do we bank that lesson with our organisations to say, do we need to wait for existential threats for us to make those changes, or can we proactively step into that space and hunt, hunt out those rattlesnakes, you know, with with purpose? And, and and so I think we've shown we can, you know. And so I think that's a real, from an agency perspective, we've really um, we've demonstrated to ourselves, I think, quite powerfully what we, we can do more than we thought. Yeah, so I, think and I was going to bring really- that up before when you said COVID really demonstrated where the gaps were, um, and the, and and really sh- showed those cracks and made them look like as big as what they were. Um, but I agree with you. It also showed that when we need to make systemic changes to the way we work, we can do it very quickly mm. if it's about uh, if it becomes a business imperative. Yeah. So how do we prioritise these things, yeah. right, like fixing yeah. the environment and the design of work? Yeah. Hey, um, Francois, I'm, I am conscious of time because uh, we, we did say to you that um, you know, an hour and a half was kind of the longest. I think we're, we're tracking to have Getting one close. of the longest ones, but it's been <laughs> – uh, if, a really, anyone, really flipping good conversation, Francois. Well, if anyone this, watches yeah. this that knows me, and there might be one, um, they'll go, they could have pre-warned you full in advance that I'm not a man, <laughs> of, well, I'm not a man of few words. So I can, I, well, I think I did, um, when, when we were talking, I did suspect that this would be a long a long <laughs> one. I think I, I mentioned that to you. <laughs> yeah, you got a lot to say, um, and it all makes a lot of sense. It really echoes our observations. Jason, what I'll say it? is I've got yeah. a lot of other people's wine that I can pour into a collective bottle. Uh, you know, a lot of these <laughs> ideas <laughs> okay. and experiences are from others is what I'll say. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, and that's powerful, right? Like I'm finding there's some LinkedIn posts that I'm doing that seem to really resonate because I am able to, like you, you listen to a lot of people, you distill their problems and you go, well, this is what it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. Um, I really enjoy that part of my job too. Mm. But uh, I guess um, more broadly speaking, I know you've been working in this area and it hasn't been your prime focus. Um, mental health, obviously broader, mm. physical health and safety mm. as well or health and safety in general is, is part of what you do. Um, but bringing the conversation back to what we've been talking about today, 
What are your hopes for the future of workplace mental health from here? My, I think, I think my hope is around us being able to get to a point where we we can frame healthy and safe and mentally well workplace in a more singular, combined, integrated way. And so, for us in the forum space, we redid our our ten year strategy about two years ago, and it was the work we were doing that that I'd done with Hillary, and this idea of thriving people really resonated with me because I've worked in a regulatory space and we talk about beyond compliance, beyond compliance. Beyond compliance suggests compliance is a bad thing. Compliance is a really important thing. You're growing up accountabilities. Take them seriously. So I didn't want to frame, I didn't want to come up with a thousand different ways of describing our objective by not using the word compliance. But equally, I know health and safety doesn't make you the most popular person at the barbie. So how do we also change that? And what I loved about thriving people is you can't thrive if you've been injured. You can't thrive if you're a threat of being injured. You can't thrive if there's no purpose at work. You can't thrive if you're worried of going, being invited to a sexual harassment VR exercise on a sofa. <laughs> or maybe you can if you've got the spirit of the organisation at hand. And so this idea of thriving as, as where we want to be, who doesn't want their team to thrive? And the idea of safety and health and well-being being connected to productivity, actually it depends how you do it. <laughs> Safety's not good for business. It depends how you do it is whether it's good for business. So my, my goal or objective or what I would love for the world is leaders really understanding what's the work they do to build cultures that enable people and businesses to thrive. That's what I would like. The leader's work is around the aquarium management, the soil preparation, mm. whatever the metaphor. That's where they put their focus. And if they can support their people to thrive, the business will thrive. So it's almost like how do we create a thriving hierarchy, not a Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know? And that mm. lets us talk about a thriving person, not in an not in an esoteric sense. If you've got issues with cutting off your people's fingers, stop cutting off your people's fingers, but don't cut off your people's fingers because compliance is your objective. Mm. What we can paint for them is a picture of saying you can do that in service of something a lot, lot bigger than just compliance. Mm. And I think what the mental health the mentally healthy work element brings into the conversation is the whole person. And it brings into the conversation people that don't wear steel cap boots. And it brings into the conversation people that aren't exposed to trucks and gas and electricity. It lets us broaden that conversation and bring in purpose and meaning and, and, and really important cultural things. So, so that's my hope. My hope, and it's not going to be quick. I won't be out of work soon. But if we can start to reposition and reframe the leadership work in this space around thriving people and thrivers, thriving businesses, you know, that when I retire, when I'm at my 70th birthday, you know, I'd like to think we're a little bit closer to that, to that being true. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, an optimist, as Joe will tell you, and I'm hoping by that, that in 20 years' time, yes, we, we are there. <laughs> uh, Francois, do you have words of advice for listeners who want to work in the field of psych health and safety? Growth area, I'd say it's important. I'd, I'd say, I'd say, step into it um, with excitement and purpose. Uh, and and like I said, my journey was one of being reluctant to step into that space to now having a genuine belief that it's a really critical part of the combination to the culture safe. Uh, so frame it and, and view it in those terms, um, and and listen as much as you talk. Listen, That's an important one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
Well, Francois, uh, it's been an amazing conversation, one of our longest, but I reckon it will go down as probably our, in our top 10 It'll as be, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll get to the top 10 pretty yeah. well. We've done time. 150 episodes, Francois, so very that's uh, nice. saying something. Nice. Yeah, something, yeah, yeah. it's um, really great, really articulate, and uh, really, yeah, you can tell you've had a lot of those conversations, you've listened well, but you've been able now to distill that, and so thank you for distilling that for our listeners today. No, thanks for the opportunity. I love your work, and um, to your listeners, Crack on, you know, this is important stuff. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Francois. Um, so, listeners, that brings us to the end of this extraordinary episode. Uh, remember, you can watch these episodes over YouTube. You're probably not going to watch this marathon again on YouTube, but with our other episodes, if you don't want to listen, you can you can watch. We also take some clips with our guests and we put them on the Flourish DX LinkedIn page if you want some short snippets uh, of some of the best uh, pieces from this and other podcasts. Uh, while you're over on LinkedIn, uh, feel free to connect with Joel and myself and Francois uh, if you want to continue the conversation. But that brings us to the end today. We'll catch you next episode. You've been listening to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. To stay up to date with the latest on psychological injury prevention, follow Flourish DX on LinkedIn and subscribe to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast at www.psychhealthandsafety.com.